Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother Baratunde Thurston. But before we get to this interview, which is awesome, he is such a brilliant, brilliant brother. I wanted to talk about this crazy MTG, uh, Marjorie Taylor Green. She just raised $3 million in the first three months of being in Congress. $3 million. For context, that's a massive number. And it all happened while she defended the insurrection that killed a Capitol Police officer and injured countless others and became the face of, I don't really know how to pronounce this. Is it QAnon, QAnon, Q-A-N-O-N? Whatever it is, she's the face of them in Congress. And while some Republicans want you to forget the past four years, these fundraising numbers tell a clear and crazy story. And that's that the Republican Party is very much now the party of Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And there's a clear financial incentive for more Republicans to behave as ridiculously as those two do. Now, I'm sure many of us, myself included, have Republican friends who will push back on this characterization. But I think we're long past the days of Bush Country Club Republicans. The face of the new Republican Party is a conspiracy theorist like Taylor Greene, Donald Trump and Matty Gates. And what we'll see in 2022 and 2024 is Republicans try to cater to this base while still trying to convince the rest of Americans that you can trust them again after a disastrous Trump presidency. One thing we can thank Trump for is the wedge he's created within the Republican Party that I don't think is anywhere close to a resolution. And Taylor Greene's campaign disclosure is yet another reminder that the inmates are running the asylum in the Republican Party. And no matter what Mitch McConnell or Mitt Romney tries to tell you, their brand of Republicanism is on the way out. And Marjorie Taylor Greene's is the new wave. And that's that on that. Now on to how to citizen with my brother. Baratunde Thurston. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, man. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We have Baratunde Thurston. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I haven't been with you since I couldn't see you, but we did this YouTube special together. Do you remember that? Yes, I did. I, I do remember that. It was a, about a year ago and there was a big production and we were, I think they called us in to fix the racism in America. I, did, I think it's fixed. I don't know. I don't know how you feel, but I, you know what I mean? I, like, oh, good. Liberty and justice is available to everybody on demand. It's like Netflix and Spotify for justice. It's dope. 
Yeah, look at that. I mean, we we doing God's work. So, look, I, you know, at my first question at the top of every show is always the same because, you know, we want to before we start getting into the mess. I want it to be a learning experience first, and and people usually see you at the height of your career, but they don't know how you got there. So, walk us through the arc of your career, and yours is pretty unique. You span writing, comedy, cultural commentary, media, and tech. Walk us through each of the key stops in your career after Harvard to the work you're doing right now with How to Citizen. Wow. That's all? That's all you want? Just Yeah. And if you, I'm a, what I'm going to do is I'm a, I'll see you in 30 minutes. The show's usually over then. So Great. just, just. I'll, do, I'll do one minute per year of life. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the after Harvard is a good way to start the clock, but I have to go back to 1977 when I was born and just give credit to my mother uh, in particular who raised me and my sister and planted so many of the seeds that mm-hmm. are bearing fruit today and defining who I am. She gave me a great sense of possibility. She was hilarious. Uh, she was creative. She was forceful in the most loving way and, and gave me permission to explore and kind of showed me what it meant to be free uh, mm-hmm. in a world designed not for that for many of us. So I, I think the big credit goes there in terms of the, the path I walked. She helped uh, put my feet on that path. Post-Harvard, I was, um, I need to pay for Harvard. Harvard's very expensive. Picard. That's what they tell me. That's what they tell me. Yeah. And I, I had worked my butt off through college to pay for that college. I cleaned bathrooms. I fixed computers. I, I had on and off campus jobs at the same damn time. Like it was, it was a, quite a grind and I was grateful for it. But then you got to pay for that stuff. So I went and worked in a mysterious field known as consulting. Yeah, y'all, the consulting and advocacy work, it, it blows my mind because I don't know what none of that means. Well, yeah, so so this is strategy consulting, which is made famous by firms such as McKinsey and Company. Oh, uh, Pete Buttigieg's old firm. Shout out to the go. Secretary Pete. Go. So I yeah. did not work for that firm, but I did work for a firm that occupied a similar space in the economy, which is to say a confusing one. <laughs> the basic setup is you help companies make more money. and You're not entirely qualified to do that, having never run a company yourself, being a fresh-faced college grad, but you are equipped to do a lot of research, to spend a lot of hours because you don't yet have a family or those types of uh, non-selfish concerns, (laughs) and you're trying to pay off these loans. And so I ended up at a firm that had a specialty in telecommunications and helping companies figure out what to do in the new telecom marketplace and in the internet marketplace. And I, I actually learned a lot. It kind of felt like school, you know, this is why it attracts some people like the liberal arts college kids. You can just stay learning, but the money flows in the opposite direction, which is, mm-hmm. I wish Harvard worked that way. So I did that for many years and I got my hands dirty in understanding business models and Microsoft Excel, but also internet infrastructure and how communications really operated, even technically. I also learned that that was not my life's calling, that I wasn't really sent here to help Verizon get more Verizon-y um, and to maximize their shareholders' values. I had values of my own that needed maximizing. Well, thank you. Um, as somebody with a 401k that has a little bit of Verizon, I want to <laughs> say, tell you, we, we, my kids and my wife, beneficiary, uh, appreciate you. I knew I would be able to help out my people. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I mean, you have validated eight years of my life. Thank you. Beneficia- beneficiaries around the world are appreciative of your work. Yeah. So, so while I was there, I got to you know stay the nerd I always was. I was always into technology and computers. My mother was a computer programmer. 
this was paying me to do it. And I got to learn this capitalist thing a little bit more up close. I also realized this was not really lighting my fire. And it was, it was burning candles at both ends of the stick. So in parallel, I was exploring my creative voice. And that came in two forms. One was comedy. And I was, you know, I would work until 8 p.m., you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then go to some open mic at a Chinese food restaurant or a Thai restaurant or an Irish pub. It was always like food involved in wherever I was doing this early quote unquote comedy. And that was starting to catch my interest a bit more, as well as political writing through blogging. And so in this this first kind of decade post-Harvard, first five years, there was a, you know, we created this blog, my friend Cheryl Conti and I, Jack and Jill Politics. So I'm writing about politics from a Black American perspective mm-hmm. on this blog, no connection to the organization, Jack and Jill of America, by the way. And I'm doing this stand-up thing. And both of those are starting to light me up way more than the day job. I just, I didn't want to be a starving artist. I have mad loans to pay off. I cannot stress how important these loans are. And so I'm, I'm kind of doing three jobs. I'm doing the day job to pay the bills. I'm doing the comedy night job to, to feed my soul. I'm doing the political writing work, weaving in some of the comedy mm-hmm. to contribute in a different way and try to live in the spirit of my mother and a big chunk of our people. And I get to a point where there's enough velocity enough momentum from the political and the comedic that I'm able to uh, achieve escape velocity from the corporate day job. That process took seven or eight years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so the the big milestone is 2007. Uh, Let me ask you a political, a personal political question that just, let's say that you weren't in this web of or nexus of student loan debt, would you have been able to pursue your dream sooner? Or was there something else holding you to this uh, dark area of advocacy, consultancy world? Um, the, the money was a big hook. I mean, I made more money in my first year in that job than I think my mother made in the peak year of her earning ever. Yeah, that's a big deal for a family (laughs) and that's a big deal for a son who promised his mother he would pay her back for every dollar that she used to fund his education. (laughs) So Uh there was there was also that there was there was the federal government loans like the federales could wait. Mama, (laughs) that makes sense. I got you. (laughs) So it's an important question. It was a big factor. The other and and why I kind of make the distinction with the McKinsey even is I did have a deep interest in the tech thing and network. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that I had found a place that specialized in that and would pay me for all this other stuff too, that was a very convenient overlap. And it allowed yeah. me to feel actually interested as opposed to just going through the motions. But like I said, at the, in the end, like I knew it was in my life. I wasn't trying to be a telecom executive. I wasn't trying to be a lifelong consultant living on planes, flying around, trying to tell people how to run their businesses in that way. Um, mm. So I got what I thought I could get. I gave a lot and it was time to part ways. And what allowed me to do that, moving to New York City in 2007 from Boston, where I'd stayed after college, that whole job was in Boston, moving to New York City, kept the job, just moved to the city. The universe kind of opened up. And it was yeah, like, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Your, your aim is true. Your heart is noble. <laughs> you can pick up Thor's hammer, pick your mystical metaphor. But I got an email from a friend who said, hey, The Onion has a job opening. I think you should apply. Oh, wow. And that was a big leap because uh, I ended up getting that job. A couple hundred people applied for it. I was unique uh, in my credentials of having done comedy, having self-published a book, having also understood technology. We crafted a job for me there to uh, be both politics editor and kind of oversee political coverage for the satirical news outlet. And what was then called web editor, uh, I changed to director of digital, but overseeing the digital presence of and like digital comedy of this 20 year old comedy brand. I mean, the onion, first dope. of all, first of all, people need to realize that the onion is not one person sitting in a basement, just tweeting stuff out. It's actually an entire group of, of brilliant, brilliant minds working together. Let me ask you a question. Why has preserving democracy or whatever the fuck we want to call what we have now become such a calling for you? Oh man. Um, <sighs> I know we have more power than we give ourselves credit for. And mm -hmm. I don't like being told there are powerful people over there that we must cater to, lobby at, demand of, to give us power. Mm -hmm. No. And, and <laughs> being Black is a big part of it. Because if we accepted that framework, then we would never get anywhere. Mm -hmm. there were the owners and the owned we don't have any power okay game over nope not good enough and so i think our example here in this country is a powerful rebuke of that separation of the powerful and the powerless and so so that's one reason i care so much about democracy another is that i'm just an optimistic leaning person I'm very fired up and critical about the failures of this place and humans in general. I've also witnessed and benefited from the successes of humans. <laughs> and the idea in a democracy is that we, the people, have the power. We are the power. Mm -hmm. And there is an underlying premise that we need each other, mm -hmm. that we are dependent on each other, and that that is strength and not weakness. And I wouldn't be here by myself. I've worked my butt off, but I really chafe at the people who look at someone like me and say, oh, he's, he did it all. This is, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps, which is a stupid metaphor that doesn't need any more attention. But I'm here because of my mother in particular, because yeah. of Boy Scouts of America, because of this Afrocentric organization in DC called Ancobia because of the DC Youth Orchestra Program, because of Bancroft Elementary School and the Sidwell Friends School and my big sister Belinda and a bunch of strangers who gave me a shot and didn't even tell me they were giving me a shot. Yeah, there was no way any of us does any of this alone. And I think democracy codifies that and says, we can do more together than we could do apart. I love that and I've lived that. So I want more of that for more of us. Yeah, that interdependency tied in a network of mutuality, an inescapable yeah. garment of destiny. Somebody brilliant once said that. Somebody brilliant said that. <laughs> <laughs> a doctor, a reverend, a junior. <laughs> yeah, no, a reverend, a doctor. We, we celebrate something. I don't know. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are a native Washingtonian, which you mentioned. I want to dive into how coming of age in Marion Barry's Washington and the cracked area in D.C. helped shape your view of blackness, politics, and democracy. Uh, D.C. was very black in the 1980s. I love Marion Barry, by the way. I call him <laughs> Uncle Marion. He, <laughs> him, him, he and my daddy were in SNCC together, so we, we have a nobody's allowed to talk bad about Marion Barry rule on my podcast. Yeah, well, we might test that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, I grew up on 16th and Newton Street, uh, okay. who, who actually knows the district. I was on 14th and Kenyon for a little while. Yeah, that's there. not very Northern. far. Yeah. That's not very far at all. And, you know, I my childhood is filled with life in the street in a good way, like playing in the street, riding bikes through the street, hiding. Oh, you mean literally like in the street, not like selling dope in the street. No, for those no, people. that's what I'm being, trying to be very clear. I was, I wasn't selling anything. I was selling Boy Scout popcorn and chocolates for school. That's it. That's all I was slinging. Uh, so I just I have very positive early memories of my block, of my neighborhood, of knowing neighbors, of sitting on the stoop all the time, and of seeing. The ladies next door hanging out in the stoop. My sister were friends with them. And then Mary and Marie over to the right. And, you know, um, I remember the neighborhood bully, who was also a classmate, one of these like frenemy type people where you call them a friend because as a method of survival. Yeah, I got (laughs) it. That's that's, that's my friend. That's that's my friend. I mean, he beats me up every once in a while, but what friend doesn't do that? (laughs) So I remember that too. And I remember block parties and going to Malcolm X Park for music festivals and the parades that would flow down 16th Street. And we would go to the corner and wait for them to toss out candy from the floats. I remember walking to school every day to Bancroft Elementary. And as I looked to my left, crossing 16th Street, that was looking to the south on a clear day, I saw the White House at the far end of the city. To make, like see the White House on your way to school is cool. And I remember um, going on field trips to the Air and Space Museum and to other museums and like, oh, we just get this. And seeing kids from all over the country mm. take huge trips and we just jump on the bus and just go because this is our city. That's right. And such pride in that. And I remember the turn. I remember seeing that bully friend that I mentioned, that frenemy, uh, was from a family of bully friends. <laughs> Uh, and frenemies, and there was a, a a line of drug dealers, and you start seeing fellas hanging outside with purpose now, and folks coming through this drive through. People would drive up the block, pause. Somebody rolls up to the window. Something's going yeah. on, and then they yeah. move off. And a little kid seeing that, and I remember the, the one day I saw a child driving a jeep, like my age. You know, and you're like, oh, they are being employed by their parent who is probably too wasted to be able to do this for themselves or doesn't want to risk getting arrested. So they send the kid. Correct. And I remember the vigils that my mother was a part of with the church to try to reclaim the block and sit with candles and occupy space so drug dealers couldn't. I remember police raids and helicopters and manhunts and shootings and beatdowns and bricks thrown. 
I remember the riots in Mount Pleasant when the police killed a Latino man and the smell of smoke. Uh, that was all a part of my, my DC. And we left the city, moved to Tacoma Park, Maryland, due to those more violent years. My mother terrified that I would fall victim yeah. to the temptation to join that street life or to just a stray bullet or a stray beatdown, yeah. being in the wrong place at the wrong time, seeing something that I shouldn't have seen. And, Let me uh, ask you a political question about your DC, because um, before I get into the podcast, which I want to, I wanted to, if, if I can, just mention DC statehood, because if it's one thing that I've learned from almost every Washingtonian, especially black native Washingtonians, they feel strongly about DC statehood. For someone who talks about race and democracy and citizening, I hope that's a word. How, yeah. how does DC, making DC a state fit into that frame for you of creating a real and responsive democracy, talking about that place that you came from? Yeah, so America has never been what it claims to be. That doesn't make it not worth pursuing. And the journey of this country, with great efforts from many people who've historically been excluded, is to make the democracy what it's supposed to be, to make it more inclusive, to right. offer liberty and justice for all. Correct. And a nation founded uh, in objection to taxation without representation. White folks so tore up about it, they dumped all the king's tea in the Boston Harbor, cannot look their fellow American in the face and say that Washington, D.C. should not be a state, should not have full representation in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, paying the taxes already, not getting the representation yeah. that we literally revolted for collectively as a people and defined ourselves by. So D.C. not being a state is a lie. You know, and it brings up the truth to the myth of America and says, you're not there yet in the same way that black people being slaves in the United States is a lie. It's the same way that women not being able to vote in the United States is a lie to the truth of liberty and justice for all and a democracy, a real democracy, a multiracial participatory, inclusive democracy. So D.C. Mm -hmm. statehood, come on now. Plus, I got an extra bone to pick. When, when I think about conservative arguments against government, they're very impersonal. They, they Washington, D.C., they treat D.C. as if it's only an occupied federal zone and not a place where people, where people live. people live. I know. Somebody, the, one of the arguments against it was it would be the only state without an airport or a car dealership. Don't know if you saw that in the hearings. I try to save myself because I love myself and don't want to pollute my mind with such nonsense. So I grew up, part of my growing up in D.C. is with beautiful black families primarily who powered this country. My mother worked for the federal government, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, Division of the Treasury Department. My grandmother on my father's side worked for the U.S. Information Agency. My grandmother on my mother's side worked in the Library of Congress in the Supreme Court building. First black person to ever work inside the Supreme Court building. My mother's mm -hmm. name. This democracy works when we work for it and black people have literally been working for it. Powering the federal government, which gives you all your protections, make sure your borders are secure, make sure the tax money is not too corruptly handled, make sure these laws- have that, word, that, word two, that word two was doing some heavy lifting in that Yes, place. it was. Yes, it was. And, and we'll always, because nobody's without any form of corruption. That's part of our human condition. So perfection is the goal, never lived reality. But I will say it is 
so racial and racist to deny people not just living in a territory of the U.S., in the nation's capital, working for the federal government to assure your freedoms, Mm -hmm. you can't provide these people the representation they are long past due. Not give, not offer, provide. Do. Two senators, representation, let's get it. This is ridiculous. I I wholeheartedly believe and what you're saying, and shout out to Puerto Rico as well. How to mm-hmm. how to citizen podcast? Let's talk about that for a minute. Now, mm-hmm. with my podcast, I've taken a much more generalist approach, but you've taken a very specific task with your podcast, and that's how we citizen as a verb. Why did you choose this approach? And what, in your view, are the essential elements of quote citizening well? I chose this approach because I um, I told you earlier I don't like feeling disempowered. I don't yeah. like people with power and people without it. And I think maybe for survival, I need to believe that, but it's convenient because that's also how democracy works. Um, and so I, I got tired of the narrative in the news that was just reminding us of how much the world is broken and not giving us anything to do about it. Not reminding us that there are already people and organizations doing many things about the many it's that plague us. Let me add, but let me let me ask you about that. I mean, how, how much more difficult is democracy and citizening when there are massive misinformation and disinformation machines in pockets of our, you know, in our own pockets and our cell phones? I mean, and how do you have democracy when you have things like white supremacy and deliberate disinformation, and yeah. they've created their own echo chambers? So we um, we've always had those things. Yeah, the country's literally founded on white supremacy. Original sin, not slavery, displacement of indigenous nations, wholesale. That was day one. <laughs> day two, chattel slavery. Right. So and there is no. They went big. Time. They went. They went big to start. There was no. They strong didn't. They opening. didn't stick their strong toe in this water. Okay. Yeah, strong yeah, opening. Strong. strong opening. Buckle up. <laughs> We're going for a ride. <laughs> so, so I, I think we've never been perfect. We try to aim for more perfect. And we have challenges today, technologically, that feel unique. And they, they, they are hard to deal with. I think we have a challenge because not just vague forces of disinformation and mm-hmm. easy to share, but one of the two major political parties has aligned itself with that white supremacy, with that disinformation, and with undermining the very idea of our democracy. That is a great challenge. We've had that challenge before too. Hello, Dixiecrats, right? Like people are always making trades and dealing. Coming from South Carolina, man, I don't. You just can't be. You can't be t- attacking Strong Thurman like that in the middle of the episode. <laughs> oh, you go ahead and defend your boy. <laughs> you do that. This is your show. Uh, so, so it is hard. But I think you know, I, I, I needed this show to bolster my own energy and remind me that it's not just stuff happening out there. There's people working on it, and that there's things we can do besides be angry at the news. Uh, So this is one way to contribute to it. As far as what I think the elements are to, to, to citizen well, um, citizen well, not citizening, citizening well. Yeah. To to citizen well, how to citizen well, citizening well, you know, we can, we can do all kinds of verb formations with, with citizen. We can get Beyonce with it. We thought about this a lot. Uh, My wife and I and putting the, the show together. Do we have a theory of citizen 
that that we're trying to apply to you gotta, this. Yeah, I mean, you got to throw it out there, right? And, and she's like, "What's your theory of change?" Because she says a lot of her work has has been in in that. And I said, like, "Oh, that's a good question, man. You're trying to ruin my podcast. Make it all structured I know. <laughs> <laughs> and sound intellectually sound foundation. I can't just mouth off. No, you can't just mouth off every day. So with the journey of the first season, we came up with four. Number one, two citizen is to show up and to participate. It's an active thing. It's pretty basic. You know, just, you're not a passenger in the car, you're driving the car. Number two, we invest in relationships with other people. We recognize our dependence on others. Mm-hmm. And we're stronger together. Okay, mm-hmm. we already talked about that. Number three, know your power. We have to understand our power. And that goes well beyond the ballot box or donating to somebody trying to be in the ballot box. <laughs> Money is power. Assembly and groups is power. But 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 Every on the flip side, is, is power. On the flip, like I, I agree with you because for me, I would always say black folks, we are the model of citizenry because mm-hmm. we vote more than anybody else. We protest, we hold this country accountable, we make it better. And arguably what we get back for our citizening, here's this word again, is essentially the equivalent of insufficient funds back from our democratic institutions. What keeps black citizening in your view? where there's ample evidence for most of us just to say, fuck it, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, I, I don't know of a healthy-minded Black person that does not have some tension in their relationship with the United States of America. I like healthy-minded. I like that. I'm stealing that. There you go. Please. Um, it, it is to me, impossible to know the history and live the present and not have some questions. You know, I got some questions about this American democracy. So you this mean- This experiment. Let's talk about this experiment again. <laughs> who, who are you experimenting on? <laughs> how's, it, how's it going? How's that working out? And, you know, I'll speak personally. I have had moments of just, peace, we out. Like- can we can we shop for some nations? Oh, Jamaica, France, even you know, colonial powers seem to be getting some of this stuff a little bit more right than the version we have here. And it's easy for me to say because I don't live there. So I think you know, wherever I go, I would inherit some history I don't really understand. This is America's the devil, you know, in a certain way. I also feel a sense of historical connection, obligation, and can collective commitment. My people are from here. I was raised here. My blood was shed here, metaphorically, in many cases, physically. And I have investments here. Am I going to write all that down, write all that off and abandon it for what? No, that's, that's letting America off the hook, you know? And, uh, and then I believe that we can be better. I think we've got, I I, I think we, you sound, I sound like I, it's like hearing my my the inner workings of my head sometimes, and with a healthy dose of Amanda Gortman, because you do sound like you're like this is an unfinished proposition. Like this Absolutely. isn't, it's not irredeemable. It's just unfinished. Listen, man. Like I am someone who believes strongly in the principles of criminal justice reform and particularly restorative justice. That no individual is defined by the worst thing they've ever done. That people can redeem themselves and have second chances and can still contribute no matter what they've done. I think I am friends with someone who's killed another person 
I'm not like, I can't be friends with you ever because you did this heinous, sinful, horrible thing. He acknowledges it. He paid a very steep price for it himself. And I have seen him show up to atone for that work with the rest of his life's work. So I know that's personally possible. I also know that people can evolve and change. My mother was born into a lot of trauma in her black female body and society designed to abuse both of those parts of her. was told she wasn't pretty enough, smart enough by her own family. And I saw her wrestle with the effects of abuse and trauma and how she inflicted it sometimes on her own children and then acknowledge that and work to be better at it. I don't write off my mother completely. I was, I thought Josh, I thought this story was taking a twist. Like I wrote her off. No. She, th- she thought her family was treating her bad. Her yeah. own son told her to go. <laughs> so if I feel that way and know that from experience with my own mother, with my own friend, so too for nations, America's just people and people decide what America is. How can people find and support this podcast, man? Howtocitizen.com. 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 We are making this show. We bring people's voices into the show, not just our guests. We give people things to do at the Mm. end of these episodes. So there is a way to citizen. I I think I was personally frustrated. Whether you go way back to George W. Bush after 9-11 telling us to go shopping (laughs) as the the most underwhelming civic request of any president ever. Or, but, it, but, but he made the effort to make a request. I mean, when you put it that way, I do have to the give soft, up. The soft bigotry of low expectations. I, just, I imagine America, if George W. Bush discovered painting sooner. Just, you know George be, W. Bush went to, went to bed at 7 o'clock every night? Wait, say what now? He went to bed at 7 o'clock. You should read his biography. So Dick Cheney really was the president. Okay. <laughs> Listen, was, before. <laughs> at midnight. <laughs> Don't let something, if something pops off at 7.30. You gotta wait till the gotta wait till the bar. Last question for you, so I can so I can let you go. I wanted to talk about the book you wrote a few years ago, How to Be Black, where among other things, you talk about navigating white spaces as a black man. I feel like one of the things we don't or didn't see with so-called racial reckoning was that very few institutions have been held to account for the black folks that are already within their institutions. Like we saw companies issue statements and say Black Lives Matter. But they have no black folks in senior leadership and they treat their black employees like shit. Am I being too cynical here or do you think we've actually seen the kind of internal accountability and reckoning within institutions that could benefit black folks or was it all performative? Much of it was performative. I, um, I make part of my living as a speaker. And after Derek Chauvin slowly killed George Floyd... A lot of white-run companies like, we need a black person to tell us what to do. Oh, trust me. I, they they called me as well. Exactly. And I happily went in there to be like, look, I mean, y'all can keep giving that money, but until your C-suite changes and your board changes, ain't nothing really going to change. And so what I, I mean, I've spoken to dozens of these organizations, medical, technological, et cetera, retail. And I think we probably say similar things, Bakari. Uh, don't just ask me. Ask the people mm-hmm. who are already here. Mm-hmm. I know from the, those experiences that a lot of those black employees are grateful to have somebody from the outside come and pop off in a way they don't feel safe to do so. Correct. I'm, I'm going to grab this check, save my piece, say our piece and keep it moving and hopefully shift the ground enough for you to get more work done. So a lot of it is PR. 
it's public relations management for these companies to post something on Instagram, to issue a crisis managed press release and feel like they're doing a good thing. The, um, the, the two pieces I would say for these organizations that are trying to be real about it. And some are, I'm glad to see. We all have to do our own audit of how we have participated in and benefited from the system of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And every institution has a history. If you've been around for any number of years, you benefited from system designed to exclude most of us in some mm-hmm. way or other. That acknowledgement is very powerful. It's not meant as a shaming exercise, in my view, just like learning history isn't meant as a shaming exercise. It's meant to have a better understanding of how we got where we are as so we can go somewhere better in the future. So I respect those organizations. Uh, there's a newspaper out of, I'm not going to get it right. I, I think it's the Kansas City Star. You might need to fact check. Me oh, yeah, they, they did the, uh, yeah, went back and did the, I think it is, it's in, I think it is the Kansas City Star. Yeah, they, they acknowledged their role in perpetuating racism in that city and not covering black communities. And when they did, only in a negative and criminal light. That is a huge acknowledgement. Acknowledgement, people, we all just want to be seen. Well, That's I mean, I always, people always want to, this is what drives me crazy about this country is people always want to heal and turn the page without acknowledgement and atonement. No, and, and no, if you're going to stick with, if you're going to bring up a medical metaphor like healing, you got to acknowledge the wound first. Correct. There's no vague healing. What are you healing? Is it a broken bone? Is it a laceration? Is it a traumatic brain nah, injury? Nah, man, just get up and walk it off. Walk it off. <laughs> so that's denial. Right? <laughs> that leads to more lives and, and, and less benefit for all of us. So yeah, I hope those companies and any kind of organization um, is willing to be brave. And, and the beauty is, you know, when, when you've had this like ruptured relationship, whether it's interpersonal or in a collective, like an organization, when you start repairing it, you actually feel better. Yeah. Whether it's an argument with your spouse or your child or your friend over something, nobody, very few people willingly enter into those arguments and to those difficult feelings. But many of us feel so much better on the other side. On of the it. other side. Because we could process it. And That's that. They're difficult and uncomfortable, but necessary. Yes. And, and. That difficulty, that discomfort, it's called growth. Mm. You know, that's, that's how it works. Exercise hurts. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know it's working because it's kind of painful. Yeah. But then you get more swole, right? And your endurance goes up. And you're you, you, can, you, can see, you can see me being swole through this Zoom. I've been, I've been working hard at it, man. Thank you for acknowledging that. Feel your efforts, brother. <laughs> yourself and the great peoples of the world. You oh, are man, living my brother. Better. Uh, Baron Tunde Thurston, thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast today, man. How to be a citizen, how to be a citizen.com or how to citizen. How to citizen, yeah. Yeah, how to. I, I gave it an extra verb. Didn't be a verb. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, to, how to citizen, Harvard grad, just all around great dude, brilliant thinker, futuristic comedian. Thank you so much for coming on the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you so much. I love what you do, the way you say what you say. I'm a big admirer. Thank you for having me on the show. It's man, me. brother. We got to do it again when we can. Uh, when the COVID allows us to be great again, we'll we'll go hang out. Yes, we will. Peace. Thank you, man. Be easy. Before I let you go, before I let go, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about what appears to be a very real divide happening between corporate America and the Republican Party. I know y'all have seen this recently. It's the most recent dust up between Republicans and conservatives with Major League Baseball and their decision to pull the All-Star game out of Gwinnett. I mean, I know y'all thought they were the Atlanta Braves, but they're really the Gwinnett Braves. That's a whole nother story. This was in response to Georgia's most recent attempt to suppress voters. 
And what has followed has been a series of corporate statements supporting MLB's decisions and condemning Georgia Republicans and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Republicans have responded with Mitch McConnell saying that there will be serious consequences if corporate America continues to act like, quote, a woke parallel government, unquote. This isn't a small deal because corporate America has always had Republicans within their ranks and within government to do their bidding. But that's now on a collision course with the Republican Party that traffics heavily in culture wars, conspiracy theories, and lies around voter fraud that keeps their base animated. And corporate America is coming to the realization that their employees and their customers aren't having it. I don't know what Mitch McConnell means about serious consequences. And I'm not sure if Republicans have anywhere to go here other than rhetoric because they suck at boycotting. That's a whole nother story and a whole nother episode. But it's good to see members of our corporate community weaning themselves from the addiction of Republican policies and being vocal and public about drawing a line for Republicans because common decency, reasonableness, and democracy, that's what we're talking about, not a partisan issue, but democracy hasn't always been enough. So cheers to Coke, Home Depot, and Major League Baseball for taking a stand. That's right, Coke, Home Depot, and Major League Baseball. I hope more large companies will continue to hold the line on lies and extremism. And that's that on that. We will see you next week. We had a great week with three great episodes, including that special episode with Lee Elder. I hope you enjoyed the week of the Bakari Sellers podcast. We'll catch you next week. Have a blessed week.